Well, it's week 36 of our series in the book of Mark. And so this is our 36th message. Go ahead and take your Bibles and locate Mark chapter 15. As you're locating that, remember, we've been seeing Jesus Christ serving the crowds in the first part of Mark. We've seen him serving his brothers in the middle section. And now as we hit 14 and beyond in the book of Mark, he's serving his father. This book deals with seeing Christ as the son of God and the servant of man. And today I'd like to ask you to, to do three things with me as we focus on the crucified Christ as our substitute. Here's what I want you to do with me in three sections today. I want you to dig into this narrative with me, first of all. Okay, we'll get our hands in it and get messy with it. Uh, and then I want you to uh, mine the doctrine out of it. In other words, we're going to unearth the theology that's in it. And then we're going to apply the obvious from it. So that's what's ahead for us. I trust you'll kind of engage with me in that. As today, we, again, we see Christ crucified and we see him as our substitute. This is found in Mark 15 in the story of Barabbas and Jesus. And frankly, uh, this story we're about to see and read, it's, it's really a tremendous, um, uh, it, it really contains tremendous physical imagery about a very deep and important spiritual reality. And so these, these 10 verses we're going to look at, they can be overwhelming in a beautiful way. And I trust you'll experience that this morning. So let's dig in, shall we? I'll begin reading in Mark 15, verse 6. Follow along with me there in your Bibles. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now, let's just pause there for a moment and bring some, some maybe uh, opinionated understanding to who Barabbas was. Often when we hear the name Barabbas, we think about it being something like the Otis on the Andy Griffith show. It's kind of like this town drunk and hardly get, get home. He just is kind of uh, barely able to get a word out, right? I, I don't think that's Barabbas. My opinion is Barabbas was probably a zealot at least a leader among the Jews in a revolt against the Romans. It was probably a Roman that he killed in this revolt, this insurrection. And so he's in prison, but he's, I think, loved by the Jewish people. He's probably a magnetic, a very charismatic person, perhaps wealthy, politically influential. He's in prison, though, and I think this is why the Jewish people want him released, because he's one of their, one of their favorites. He's one of their leaders. And so don't consider Barabbas like some can hardly get his act together drunkard. He actually may be quite well-to-do and a, a thoughtful as far as a, a protesting kind of person. Not saying he's right, but I think changing our mind about maybe the kind of person he was helps us get a sense of this text. He's the one in prison. And so the crowd comes up and begins to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Verse 9, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And here's why he asked them that question. For he perceived that was, it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Now, a little background on there. Uh, Pilate knew that the crowds generally loved Jesus. But he also knew that the chief priests and the scribes didn't like Jesus, but they wouldn't move on Jesus because of the crowd. And you'll find that several times in Mark. And so Pilate thought to himself, well, if I could release Jesus, that endears the crowd to me, and it kind of corners the scribes and chief priests again. So that's what's in his head. And so he asked him, of course, in verse 9, do you want Jesus? 
But when the chief priest realized he was asking him this, verse 11 says that they stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And this is exactly what happens. They stir the crowd up, probably filled with many of their friends, uh, many of their acquaintances. This is an early morning situation. Most of the villagers who had been in other crowds were probably still at home, uh, perhaps in surrounding areas. This was probably just a crowd filled with those who knew what had happened hours before. They were friends of these chief priests and, and, and scribes. And so they're easily influenced and they scream for Barabbas. And so Pilate says in response, verse 12, what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And so Pilate says to them, verse 14, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, and watch these five words here, wishing to satisfy the crowd. That'd be terrible to be known as a, as a finger in the wind type of leader, wouldn't it? And you can see this all in this narrative as well as the other gospel accounts. He was wondering about what to do with Jesus and he was always looking for, for an answer. This phrase so adequately describes Actually, not a leader, but a coward. And that's what Pilate was. And so wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, which by the way, is a punishment designed to get someone very close to death so that the crucifixion doesn't take as long. In fact, often uh, they didn't survive the scourging. And so this is what Pilate had Jesus endure a scourging, and then he delivered him to be crucified. In this text, we find really four primary characters. You find Barabbas, the crowd, Pilate, and Jesus. And all of these characters contribute in some way to this exchange that's occurring, this exchange between Jesus Christ and Barabbas. Just again, by way of review, you have Barabbas's popularity, you have Pilate's a cowardice. You've got the crowd who's so easily influenced. And then you've got Jesus focused on serving the will of his father. And all are contributing to this exchange between, between a guilty rebel and this innocent disciple maker. Now, this exchange is heightened when we think about the names involved. And I want you to stay with me here, church. Listen very carefully. Because what you have is Barabbas, which means son of the father from an earthly perspective. Bar means son of, Abba is a word for father. And so Barabbas was designated or known as son of the father. And here's what makes this even more unique and interesting. In some of the copies of Matthew's manuscripts, he's known as Jesus Barabbas. In some manuscripts, he's not. But there is some evidence that his first name may have been Jesus. So on one hand, you have the guilty one known as as son of the father. And on the other, other side, you have the innocent one who is Jesus, God's son. He's a son of the father, but he's the heavenly divine one. So I think it's very intriguing and striking that in this text, you have son of the father, Barabbas, and son of the father, Jesus, and there's an exchange. The, the pure one becomes the pierced one. And the true sinner, he, he actually becomes the set free one. And so here's what's happening in this text. You have this incredible exchange between 
the guilty for the innocent, the pure for the impure, the sinner for the sinless. Now, everything about this story points to something bigger than, than just that simple, uh, you know, quote-unquote news report about a zealot getting released. It's, it's, it's bigger than just an explanation as to why Jesus Christ didn't get released. I think the clear, unmistakable point in this text uh, that not only Mark makes, by the way, but every other gospel writer makes, the clear, unmistakable point is this. Jesus took the place of sinners. Jesus took the place of sinners. And suddenly, Mark 15, 6 through 15, becomes more than a story. It becomes doctrine wrapped in living color. It becomes theology framed in real life events. And what is the theology being framed? What is the doctrine that surfaces and comes screaming at us so, so clearly? It's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. This is the physical picture in Mark 15, and substitutionary atonement is the spiritual truth and reality. It's also known as vicarious atonement. And let's take a few minutes now to mine from this narrative some of the theological, doctrinal things that we can learn about substitutionary atonement. There are two aspects to substitutionary atonement, all right? There's a personal aspect and there's a penal aspect. We're going to look just this week at the personal aspect of substitutionary atonement. Next week, we'll deal with the penal aspect. But I want to encourage you, make both weeks a priority. Listen close, take good note, take very good notes. Embrace this truth tightly. Understand, we'll never exhaust it. It's fundamental. It's so important. Hold it and grasp it. Love this truth. It's, uh, it's something we cling to because it deals with Christ taking our place as the crucified lamb. Again, a personal aspect and a penal aspect. And maybe you're wondering, well, why we, do we look at this for two weeks? It's because there are false, incomplete, unbiblical views out there. In fact, let me just show you four so that you know what not to believe, all right? Here are four views down through history that do not describe accurately or biblically substitutionary atonement. The Socinian view, uh, which stems from a man who was an Italian in the Reformation days, he was a humanist and he did not believe Christ was God. Uh, his opinion was that uh, the crucifixion was just a, an example for us. And so he would say it's a way to show your love for God and perhaps a way to keep you from sinning. It's just called the Socinian view. The moral influence view is a view that says the, the atonement was really a way for God to show his love for us. Again, both of these are heretical. The governmental view is a, has some truthful aspects to it. It lacks the personal aspect in that what it says is basically Christ died in our place, but only so that the law could remain intact and then God could govern the affairs of men uh, with equity and justice. And so they take much of the personal aspect out of it. That's called the governmental view. And then the ransom view, which is the view that God paid Christ's blood and his life to the devil uh, to buy back his children. But God did that deceptively and Satan wasn't aware of it. It gets kind of crazy and weird, to be honest with you. That's the fourth view. None of those views are correct. Each of them may have a, a point to make that could be truthful, 
but they all are incomplete and unbiblical. The view that is the, the biblical view, the one that we hold to, is the satisfaction view. That in Jesus, God is completely 100% satisfied. That all of God's justice is met in Jesus. That all of God's wrath is filled up in Jesus. And so God is satisfied. This is also known as substitutionary atonement or the satisfaction view. And again, there are two aspects to the satisfaction view or to substitutionary atonement. Again, it's personal and penal. So let's take some time now while we're still mining the doctrine, while we're still kind of unearthing theological points from this text, to understand more about the personal aspect of substitutionary atonement. Now, when I say to you that substitutionary atonement is personal, what I'm trying to say is that it's relational, okay? In other words, uh, it, it's, uh, it's for people. It's for sinners. Don't forget, in the story of Mark 15, Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. That's very personal. It's relational. And so, in other words, substitutionary atonement is aimed at, at restoring our relationship to God. And by the way, this thread is woven throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, the, re, the, the personal relational aspect of substitutionary atonement is clearly seen. In fact, let me show you a sampling of verses. Hang with me. You might want to jot these verses down. I'll go through these rather quickly, but notice how this, this thread is, is beautifully seen in, in the meta narrative of the Bible. In beginning in Genesis, when God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin, indicating there was a substitute animal after they sinned, took the place of Adam and Eve. Here's Isaiah chapter 53, in which the prophet says that we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, speaking of the suffering servant, the iniquity of all of us. He took our place. He was our substitute. John 10, such a good, clear scripture that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In Romans, there are two very good references to uh, substitutionary atonement. In Romans chapter 5, it says so explicitly, Christ died for the ungodly. And then Christ died for us. I mean, so blatant. As you go to Romans 8, 32, it says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. As you move to the book of Hebrews, you find that the writer here says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and do you see the thread just over and over? That substitutionary atonement is very personal. Christ for us. As you get to the book of 1 Peter, it says here, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Man, that's just like uh, elementary, isn't it? It's so factual and plain and clear to us. And then Revelation, here's how it ends. I love this verse. That Christ is worthy, the Lamb is worthy, because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. The word ransom means to buy back, to pay for, to purchase. It reminds me of Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is what Jesus came to do. To fill up the justice of God. To meet God's standard perfectly for us. It's very personal. Now, a word of caution here. When you hear that, you might begin to think, well, isn't Christianity also corporate? Isn't there a people that Christ is, 
uh, purchased. It is corporate. He did purchase a people. But I want to make sure you understand something here. Those are not exclusive of each other. It is a corporate body. Christ purchased the church, but that corporate body, the we, is made up of, of millions and millions of yous and me's, the eyes. Are you with me? That's what's happening here. And, and here's why I think that sometimes in the West, we downplay the personal aspect of substitutionary atonement. Here's why. Because consumerism creeps into the church. We see the negative downsides of individualism. And so we tend to sometimes want to create a, an unnecessary distinction in the atonement so that people don't become too selfish or, or consumer-driven. But can I say to you, I think that's a bad tactic. We don't defeat consumerism by uh, not teaching substitutionary atonement correctly. In fact, I would say the opposite. The way to drive consumerism out of your life and out of the church is to teach it biblically, wholly, correctly, thoroughly. And a thorough personal understanding of substitutionary atonement would do much to drive out selfishness, consumerism. As you see Jesus dying in your place, it would breed a heart of gratitude and service. And so I want to say to you, without any apology, man, we embrace the personal aspect of substitutionary atonement that Jesus died for people, for you. Now, maybe you're wondering why it has to be personal. Again, we're still mining some doctrinal elements, so stay with me, all right? Let me just give you briefly two reasons why substitutionary atonement is such a personal matter or personal doctrine. First of all, it's because sin is very personal. In other words, church, hear this loud and clear. We don't offend a set of ordinances. We don't break just commands. We actually sin against a holy God. We, we violate His holiness. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We, it's a personal matter. And so, because sin is personal or relational, substitutionary atonement must be relational as well. Let me just keep throwing some verses your way, okay? So keep writing these down, taking pictures of the screen. Just, just watch this. Here's verses that show the, the, the intensely personal nature of sin against God. I think David says it best in Psalm 51 when he says this, against you and you only have I sinned. Wow, what a, what a powerfully personal statement of repentance. The prophet Hosea, as well as the prophet Jeremiah, they leaned in well. Here's what Hosea would say. He talked about how uh, God loved Israel and called Israel. You see those personal words used? And yet he says the more they were called, the more they went away. He's got a relationship in mind here, these personal pronouns. And Jeremiah says the same thing. He talks about how uh, he, uh, speaking of God, broke their yoke and he burst their bonds, speaking here of their freedom and deliverance from Egypt. And yet he said, you say to me, you will not serve. In other words, their rebellion is very personal. It's a betrayal. And so throughout the Bible, we just see sin being very personal. And when Paul comes to Romans 3, he puts us all in the same category by saying this, all have sinned and we fall short. What? 
of the glory of God. So there's a very personal nature in this verse and Jew and Gentile are both in it. And so I want to say to you, church, substitutionary atonement demands a personal aspect. First of all, because sin is personal. I remind you what the prophet said. He said, it's your sins that have separated between you and your God. You see, sin breaks relationship. And so because sin is personal, because sin is relational, its atonement must be as well. There's a second reason that substitutionary atonement must be personal, and that's because salvation is personal. So the, the first reason may have seemed somewhat negative, uh, you know, sobering, but here's some great news. Salvation is also personal. In other words, God calls people to repentance. God calls people to be saved. It's the men and women that he extends his call to. Yes, that's right. The gospel goes out to human beings. That's, that's who God saves. Men, women, boys, girls. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a very personal, salvific call. Now, I'm not just making this up. This is not just uh, good preaching rhetoric. This is Bible truth. Let me show you four verses that show the, the personal nature of God's salvation. John chapter 1, verse 12. To all who did receive him, that's even a personal action, isn't it? He gave them the right to become children of God. What a beautifully personal uh, name. You're, you're someone's child. You're born into his family. In Acts chapter 16, when the jailer says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, very personal. And by the way, while we're here, he's not saying the household is saved just because this one man believes. The point of the verse is, if the household does what you do, believe in the Lord Jesus, they'll be saved as well. It's always a personal matter. Salvation is, is uniquely personal. We move on, of course, to the New Testament. Here's Romans 10. Paul gives some clearly personal instruction about, about how, to, how to accept Christ, how to believe in Jesus. He says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. 2 Corinthians 5. Here's perhaps the, the best verse in regards to substitutionary atonement. Look what he says here. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow, that's so personal that God's salvation is, is dependent upon Jesus taking our place. And so, so understand, because sin is personal, and because salvation is personal, Substitutionary atonement must be personal. Let me see if I can illustrate in this way, drawing upon the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 1, um, Moses talks about bringing a burnt offering from the herd, perhaps a lamb. And before they would sacrifice the lamb, this is verses 3 and 4, before they would sacrifice the lamb, he would have the the one who brought the sacrifice, who was actually the one who sinned, he would put his hand on the head of the animal. And in that symbolic motion, the, the guilt and sin is transferred from the actual sinner to the substitute, to the sacrifice. And then they would offer the lamb as a sacrifice. 
And this is how Israel, both regularly and periodically, as well as annually, the Day of Atonement, this is how they atoned for their sins. But they had to keep doing it because there was no perfect, infinitely holy animal. And for sure, there was no perfect, infinitely holy person until Jesus. And so when John the Baptist saw Jesus standing and declared in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Can you imagine what every Jew was thinking? They're thinking through centuries of laying their hand on the head of an animal and transferring the guilt to this substitute sacrifice, but only periodically and, and annually. And they're knowing I've got to do it again later. But when Jesus came, the perfect lamb, he took our place once and for all. He was the perfect atoning sacrifice. And so I say to you, if salvation, if sin, if they're both personal, I contend that this requires that substitutionary atonement also be personal. And I can assure you, First Family, that's exactly what it is. And so to this truth, let us say a hundred hallelujahs because this means something so dear to us. It means that you that I can be saved. It means that because Christ died for you, you can be forgiven. You can have your sins washed white as snow. Christ personally took your place, substituting himself for you and atoning for your sins. And this is the beautiful doctrine we're mining out of Mark 15. This is the triumphal truth that, that comes out of this tragic event of Mark 15. When we see Jesus taking the place of Barabbas, when we see the son of the earthly father being set free and the son of the heavenly divine father being taken away and crucified. In fact, Mark 15, 15 sums this up well. It's the narrative and the doctrine all together. Look at this verse with me. We kind of come full circle back to our text now, don't we? We've, we've seen the text. We've kind of mined. We've unearthed some doctrine from it. We come back to our text now. And it says this. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. My sense is, you're already well aware of our big idea today. It's not hard to spot. It's surfacing. It's emerging. So can we just go ahead and clearly state our stay-at-home truth today? That's right. We've changed the name there. We normally call it a take-home truth. But you're already home today. You're not taking it from our auditorium. You're there at home, so we're just going to change the name. You, we're calling it a stay-at-home truth, okay? But here it is. And here's the, the, the radical, beautiful truth that is so motivating for us. Jesus died in our place as the only suitable substitute for sinners, saving us personally. Church, say that. Write it. Rejoice in it. For sure, believe it. Put your feet on this solid rock that Jesus died in our place as the only suitable substitute for sinners, saving 
us personally. Now I'd remind you that this doctrine, which is just uh, seen in the narrative here in Mark 15, this beautiful doctrine has motivated the church and Christians for hundreds of years. One person in particular is Charles Wesley. Uh, around the 1730s, Charles Wesley became a Christian. And you know his name uh, as he was the founder of the Methodist movement, the writer of over 6,000 hymns. And one of the hymns that he wrote just after he was saved is the hymn, And Can It Be? Some old English wording at times, but he wrote this hymn in response to the to the incredible truth that Jesus died in his place. In fact, not only was he just previously saved a few days before he wrote this, his brother was saved a few days after he wrote this, John Wesley. Here's how the first stanza of this hymn goes. Listen to these words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me? who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's the doctrine that was so true of Charles Wesley and moved him and gripped him and seized him in such a wonderful way to serve the Lord. And this is what is so true and so evident in so many of you listening and watching this morning. You have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as your only means of being reconciled to God. You're trusting Him and Him alone as your Savior. You have placed your feet on this good news, the gospel. And you believe Jesus is God's Son who, who took your place and saved you from your sin. And your heart right now is stirred. It's moved. It's fervent. You are deeply thankful. You're grateful and rightly so substitutionary atonement does exactly this to us. But those very feelings and motivations and those truths, that's also what is not evident and not true about many of you listening and watching this morning. You persist in thinking you can save yourself, that somehow you can atone for your own sins, perhaps in some way make things right on your own, but I can assure you there's no way under heaven that a mere human can do that. Only God can assuage his wrath against sin. And Jesus, as God in the flesh, did exactly that when he died on the cross. So I urge anyone listening this morning to turn from trusting yourself, your name, your deeds, your works, turn from those things and instead, trust Jesus, God's Son, who took your place. He atoned for your sins. Remember, only Jesus saves. And only Jesus is the worthy and suitable substitute for you. This is precisely what Bob Lund realized one day a few years ago. Many of you know Bob. Bob attends here. And I tell you this story because it was an encouragement to me this week in a moment when I was facing and just kind of working through and battling some discouragement. It was early in the week and um, I was thinking through our, our adjustments here 
And it's not just us, but nationwide people are adjusting, pastors and churches. And so we're not alone in that. But just thinking through, you know, all that it's going to mean in the next several weeks and and just kind of a complaining a bit, to be frank with you. Like, Lord, uh, this is probably going to hurt our outreach. It's going to uh, maybe um, have an adverse effect upon our ministry. Lord, th- this could mean that more folks won't hear it. I just kind of had this maybe doubtful attitude for a bit. And God just began to remind me, Todd, he said, do you think I rely on on certain methods or mediums or avenues as if I'm restricted to those? He said, Todd, I can work in people's lives in all kinds of ways. And so I was just being reassured by that. And about that time, Becky, who works on our staff, our children's ministry director, she approached me. We were talking, in fact, to staff meeting, and she just shared how her dad uh, heard the gospel and was drawn to Christ through a, a TV broadcast by a preacher here in this local area years ago. In fact, her dad was not going to church, wasn't in, uh, interested in true Christianity at all, was, was kind of part of a dead mainline church, but never went much. And he said he was home one morning and he heard this pastor on the TV just talking about Jesus and sharing some things about how the Lord was helping them in practical ways. And he said something in his heart began to be convicted. He said, I want to hear more about that. And he said he went to the church. In a few weeks, he went to a retreat. And at that retreat, he heard about Jesus taking his place, bearing his sin, and providing salvation and forgiveness. And Bob said, on that day, I trusted Jesus and not myself. All that started through a simple TV broadcast of a preacher sharing the gospel. And when I heard that from Becky, I just began to think, wow, You know, we may be in a time of adjustment here. We may be in a time in which we're kind of navigating some waters we've never charted uh, charted before. But God's not limited. And he can work in all kinds of ways through all kinds of means to bring the great news of Christ crucified as our substitute to all kinds of people. And so I don't know who's listening or watching this morning, but I do know who's working. God is. And wherever you are this morning, if you're wondering if anyone loves you, you're wondering what in the world you're going to do about your sin, your past, your mistakes, your failures. You wonder if there's any hope. I have great news for you. There is hope, and he has a name. His name is Jesus. That's right. Jesus took your place. He bore your sins on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. He took God's judgment for you personally and once and for all. And if that's you, then right where you are, would you ask God to save you through Jesus? Would you right now trust in Jesus alone as the only suitable substitute able to save you? Here's what I can promise you. God will do exactly what he says. He will forgive you and save you through the life and death of Jesus, his only son and your only substitute. Can we pray together? Let's all bow our heads. And just for a moment, can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone who's heard this morning the 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 great news that you have taken the place of sinners 
And Lord, it was seen in, in what many consider to be just a simple story about a man named Barabbas who got released because the crowd wanted to crucify you. But there is so much more than just a physical event. Emerging from that is the spiritual reality that you took the place of sinners. And Lord, this is a very personal truth. And so would you in this moment, to everyone listening, God, would you apply the truth of your word to hearts and convict men and women and boys and girls? And would you bring to repentance and faith anyone who is trusting anything other than Jesus? And God, would you, by your grace and through faith, save them this morning? This I pray in the beautiful, good name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.